Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I love to travel. The last trip I had was a quick visit up to New York City to do some filming, and while I was there, of course, I had to visit some of my favorite historical places. But history is everywhere in New York. It's not just the museums and the historic houses, but it's in the place names themselves. To talk about just that, our guest this week is environmental law professor Rebecca Brotspies, author of the new book, Naming Gotham, the villains, rogues, and heroes behind New York's place names. Today, we're looking at the history of New York City through a few remarkable people who have lent their names to New York's infrastructure. If you've ever found yourself in Astoria or Bryant Park, wondering where the name came from, you're not the only one. Rebecca has spent the last several years researching the incredible stories behind the place names, and her new book reads like the best possible travel guide for history nerds checking out the Big Apple. So here is my interview with Rebecca Brotsby's. I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody. My guest today is Professor Rebecca Brotsby's, author of Naming Gotham, the villains, rogues, and heroes behind New York's place names. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's such an honor to be here with you today. Well, we're so glad to have you. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this book. It, it's like the, the best possible kind of travel guide. I've been to New York a few times, but now I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> how did this project start? What made you want to do it? Well, to be honest, this started in a traffic jam. So my husband and I used to take the Major Deegan um, quite a bit as we left New York City to go visit my parents in Pennsylvania. And as any New Yorker knows, to take the Major Deegan means to be stuck in traffic. And I used to always complain. I was like, who was this Major Deegan anyway? I hate him. <laughs> and I, you know, we were on our way to the George Washington Bridge. Everybody knows who George Washington is. Nobody has a clue who Major Deegan is, even though we all take the Major Deegan Expressway if we're driving out of the city. So I used to whine about that a lot. Eventually, my family got really sick of hearing me whine, and they said, why don't you find out who he was? So I did, and uh, it turns out he's way less impressive than you'd think he might be, given that he has his major road named after him. And that sort of got me interested in who are all of these people that we name things for across the city, and it became a hobby, and then it became a book. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And uh, New York has a lot of place names uh, named after people. It's a, it's an interesting way to kind of remember the history, even as you say, if, if some of these people have, have since been forgotten. Uh, but you do a great job, you know, shining a spotlight on some of these forgotten historical figures. Now, there were a few that stood out to me. And I mean, there were so many to choose from. But but of course, I want to ask you about them. So the Hutchinson Parkway is named after Anne Hutchinson, a 16th century woman who was once called an American Jezebel for her views on religion and refusal to be subordinate to men. Uh, I got to say, I like her. I, I, I do I too. Very she, yeah. I, I, if we met her, we probably wouldn't like her very much because she was a Puritan. 
Yeah. But she was at least a badass woman Puritan. She was. Yeah. She, she seemed pretty badass. So, yeah. so what is her story? Did you say she was born in England, but she was educated at Oxford? Yeah. So it's a little unclear exactly how she was educated, but she clearly had a really strong education, which was obviously not typical for women of the time. Her father was a clergyman. Her father was a rebel clergyman. Um, and she, um, married a, a man named William Hutchinson, who was way older than her, and they both became followers of John Cotton, who was the Puritan minister who came over to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, sort of fled to the Massachusetts Bay Colony to escape persecution in um, England, and she and her husband followed him over here with their gazillion children. And um, she got in trouble. She basically started getting in trouble the moment they got onto the ship. Because even though she was a follower of John Cotton, she had her own ideas. Um, mm -hmm. For one, she thought that as a woman, she was entitled to have her own ideas, which was definitely not part of the Puritan ethos. And she had the idea that she could speak directly to God rather than funnel everything through the ministers um, and that she could interpret scripture on her own. Again, directly contradicting Puritan uh, orthodoxy. So she came to the United States and she was a midwife, right? Those midwives are always, you know, in that in-between space because they have a clear role in society and they have a profession and they have stature at, in a world that didn't allow them to have a profession and stature and their own identity. And she started giving lectures about her vision of uh, religion, her vision of the world. And at first only women came, but then men started coming as well. And that really freaked the um, Boston orthodoxy uh, out. So um, she became a, uh, a target. And when John Winthrop was elected governor, of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was, I think, 1637, maybe, he issued an order to have her arrested for the crime of traducing the ministers, which is basically sedition. Mm -hmm. And so she had both a religious and a civil trial. She was excommunicated. And in her trial, she's pregnant again. She had like 16 children, I think. So she was pregnant standing because the criminal defendant stood at the the dock, um, going quote, biblical quote for biblical quote with the um, official ministers who were interrogating her. And uh, she was convicted of the crime of traducing the ministers and was excommunicated and then forced out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And in the end, in fact, John Cotton, right, who was her mentor and religious leader, turned against her. He stood with the ministers against her as uh, she was being convicted. She fled with her followers to Rhode Island, um, which was a colony that of course had been established by people who fled Massachusetts because of religious persecution. And she stayed there for a while until the, um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was threatening to invade Rhode Island in part to get her back. So she came to New York instead, um, John Throgmorton, who was an English settler here. At the time, New York was not New York, it was New Netherlands, it was a Dutch colony. And John Throgmorton invited her to come down here 
And so she and her, much of her family and some of her other followers came and established a, a homestead, I guess, for lack of a better word, here in the New York area. And that is how she winds up in a book about New York. That's amazing. Now, uh, I know you mentioned that Nathaniel Hawthorne compares her to Hester Prynne in, in The Scarlet Letter. Yes, um, he, you know, he found her to be an extremely interesting character and a, a very admirable one. And um, the a lot of people think, I mean, he never confirmed this entirely, but a lot of people think that the relationship between Hester Prynne and um, Reverend Dimsdale is an allegory about the relationship between John Cotton and Anne Hutchinson, uh, probably without the sex part. Yeah, gosh, that's interesting. Now, I know that uh, Anne was married and she had 16 kids with her husband. Absolutely yes. incredible. And although uh, we think now, like in a lot of religious sects, that it's really kind of like encouraged to have a lot of kids at the time, that wasn't necessarily the case. And I was surprised to see that the church actually accused her of promiscuity, even though she was married. So, I mean, that just seems so silly to me. I, I just had to- Well, that's the, the go-to attack against a woman. I mean, it has yeah. been historically and it continues to be, right? Right, right. But it's like, you can't win, you know? So no. it's like, you're, you're married and you're clearly, you're having sex, you're procreating a lot. But like, even that isn't like good enough. You know, it's like, oh, well, well it's still too much. <laughs> yeah, well, actually it's really striking in the, one thing that was really striking to me in writing this book is just how many children people had. Mm -hmm. it's hard to remember that now um you know it's, it was routine for a lot of these a lot of the people who are uh, the subject of the book to have somewhere between 10 and 15 children and um not always with just one mother because a lot of the people I'm writing about are men and they would have wives die in childbirth because a lot of women died in childbirth but some you know there's like a lot of people having a lot of children because they didn't have necessarily have access to good birth control mm -hmm. And also a lot of them didn't live to adulthood. Yeah, that's right. Child mortality was was a lot higher. Yeah. And of course, uh, obviously, New York at this time was not the sort of wonderful metropolis that it is today. So what was it like in the 17th century when it was New Netherlands? So there's a great book that a contemporaneous book written by Adrian Vanderdonk, who's also in the book because Yonkers is named after him. His nickname was uh, the Young Sir, and that's where Yonkers comes from. Um, but anyway, he wrote a book called a History of New Netherlands mm -hmm. that is a fascinating window into what the region was like at the time. And Adrian Vanderdonk was um, Dutch. He came over from Leiden and he was officially Rensselaer's sheriff. But he had gone to university in Leiden and was sort of steeped in the Dutch free state uh, ideas about uh, freedom and lack of serfdom. And so he often sided against Rensselaer with the people who had come over thinking they were going to be landholders and wound up sort of being serfs. Um, and he also had a keen interest in the natural world and in the peoples who were around him. So unlike most colonists, he learned Mohawk, he learned um, Iroquois, and he learned Algonquin. So he could speak to and learn from the people who were surrounding him, who are sort of absent from most of these histories because 
right? The, the histories that we have tend to have been written by Europeans who you know, viewed the indigenous uh, peoples as backdrop as opposed to actors in the world. So anyway, he um, his book, I highly recommend it. It's available freely online in English translation. And if you want a, a vision of what the world looked like in the 1600s here in this region that was at the time New Netherlands, it's a great um, window. Um, also the book, uh, Island at the Center of the World, has uh, Adrian van der Delk as a central character, gives you some of that same flavor. We have to talk about Anne Hutchinson's tragic demise. I stopped her story at the point where she came to New York, which was great, except she came into the middle of a war with the, um, with some of the local um, indigenous groups um, that had been sparked by the Dutch governor Kieft. It was called Kieft's War. It was a seriously ill-advised, entirely provoked by him conflict. And her settlement was attacked and she and everybody except one of her daughters were killed. And in fact, in Massachusetts, they celebrated because Jezebel had been brought low and they viewed her murder, her, her death as a divine judgment. Um, and in fact, going back to Adrian Vanderdunk, it was his linguistic skills that the governor Keith had a turn to, to try to negotiate some kind of a settlement once he realized that this war he'd started was a very bad idea. And uh, one last thing about Anne Hutchinson before we move on, and that is as governor, Michael Dukakis officially pardoned her and revoked her banishment from Massachusetts. Wow, all those years later, yeah. and, and something like that to be so so contentious that he felt the need to, to go in and do that. That's absolutely incredible. So uh, Pulaski Bridge and the Pulaski Skyway in, in New Jersey, which appeared in the opening to The Sopranos, as you mentioned, uh, they are named after one of my favorite people from history, the father of the American cavalry, General Casimir Pulaski. So he had a very interesting life. What was his story? He is a very interesting guy. Um, he was born to the sort of mid-level Polish nobility and uh, was trained as a uh, cavalry officer, obviously. And then he was one of the leaders of the Bar Revolt, which was a plan to overthrow the Polish king, who was viewed as a Russian puppet, Stanislaus II, Augustus, and to uh, replace him with this confederacy that ruled uh, Poland for a little while. They were initially successful and they got some recognition from some other European powers, but then uh, the Russians and the uh, regrouped with the Polish king and they uh, ultimately lost. At which point Pulaski fled. He was tried in absentia and sentenced to death. And he wound up in, in uh, Paris with no money and um, some of his friends introduced him to Benjamin Franklin, who then recommended him to George Washington. And um, so Pulaski came over here to the United States, well, to the soon to be United States to join the revolution. And uh, Washington commissioned him to organize a, a cavalry. Supposedly he saved Washington's life at the Battle of Brandywine. Um, but, you know, they said that about a lot of people, a lot of people, George Washington must have been on the verge of death all over the place because <laughs> people have saved his life. But 
anyway, Pulaski did uh, organize the uh, cavalry in the Continental Army. He was called the father of the American cavalry. And um, he, oh, one thing I have to add about him, because at one point he was stationed in my hometown of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where it was his job, where the Liberty Bell had been secreted. They, they got it out of Philadelphia to protect it from the British. And so he was in charge of defending that area, Bethlehem and Allentown. And um, it was a heavily Moravian area and the Moravian nuns made him this huge battle flag that they wanted him to carry into battle with him. And it was commemorated by a quite frankly, very tedious poem by Longfellow. And um, I don't know if he actually carried the banner into battle because I think it was like really long and really heavy. But anyway, it was a nice gesture and it happened in my hometown. So I always like to include that. Uh, Pulaski died extremely young. He was in his 30s. He uh, suffered mortal wounds at the Battle of Savannah yes. and was buried uh, at a farm nearby. And his bones were then moved. They made, they built a you know, a public monument, that's the word I'm looking for, commemorating him. And they put his bones in there. And then when they were uh, refurbishing the monument, they excavated his bones and discovered something really interesting about him. And it turns out by looking at his pelvis that um, probably Pulaski was intersex. Mm -hmm. And there's like his life trajectory sort of provides some confirmation to this assumption that based on his bones that he was intersex because he never married. He was small and slight and had a reputation for extreme modesty on the battlefield, which was not really something that um, was a typical behavior of, of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of the stuff we hear now about how all of a sudden we have transgender people and all of a sudden we have gay people. Not true at all. People have existed throughout history and it's just that right now it's uh, uh, become a conservative rallying cry to focus on uh, people who are vulnerable. Right, right, absolutely. And um, I find that story so, so fascinating, you know, and, and also, you know, you, you mentioned that it, it's unclear, we don't know if Pulaski was was aware that he was intersex, although kind of given, you know, as you say, he was very private, he never married, you know, it sounds like, you know, maybe he was. And of course, at the time, if, if he was born with obvious intersex traits, his parents would have been able to decide if he should be raised, you know, male or female. Now, um, as as a woman, like he would never be able to marry, but but as as a man, he could become the father of the American cavalry. So like you can see if if they had a choice, you can see why they would have why they would have chosen that. And and obviously he had an absolutely incredible life. You know, he he escaped Poland, he came over here and and he's one of our great American heroes, you know, and and he was probably intersex. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it is really yeah. <laughs> uh fascinating. Um and you know, during the time that I wrote this book, that that fact about him went from being sort of this theory that was floated on the internet to a proven um, genetic um, uh, connection to the bones that were found in the memorial. And so that's one advantage of it taking a while to write a book is that things change on the ground and information uh, emerges and solidifies.
That's right. And and then that, that's so fascinating. I know that's come out in the last couple of years. Um, I first read about it in the in the Smithsonian. I thought it was so mm-hmm. great. And then I know, of course, uh, as you mentioned, within the last couple of years, they compared his DNA to to one of his one of his sort of descendants, a, a grand niece, I think it was. And uh, and they right. did confirm that that it was in fact Blasky. Right. He he often. had no children. He never married, had no children, and right. there's no rec there's nothing in the historical record about any relationships that he mm-hmm. might have had that were, you know, either a sexual or romantic in nature. Right, right, exactly. So it was it was uh I think it was taken from a niece. I think that's who it was. Yeah. So just just fascinating, isn't it? I I, I love his story. I think that's wonderful. Um so what is his connection to New York? What was he doing there? So he was organizing the cavalry in uh, in in New York. Right, New York was a battle, major battlefield in the Revolutionary War, and um, General Washington, you know, ha- was here on the ground with his troops. And in fact, it was the, the Battle of Brandywine was in New Jersey, which is where Pulaski, in theory, saved um, George Washington's life. And uh, of course, things are named for Pulaski all over the country. And Congress named uh, March 4th as Casimir Pulaski Day. So he's very well honored Mm -hmm. in in the United States. Um, The the two main pieces of infrastructure that are named for him are the Pulaski Skyway and the Pulaski Bridge. The Pulaski Bridge is in Queens and it connects Brooklyn and uh, Queens. Actually, I guess it's between Brooklyn and Queens, but I live in Queens, so I think of it as in Queens. And it is, uh, among other things, the unofficial halfway point in the New York City Marathon. It was built and named, well, it was built in the late 1930s and it was named just weeks after the Nazis had invaded Poland. And it was named, it, it, it was named and the Kosciuszko Bridge were named as a clear message of solidarity with the people of Poland. Uh, it happens that it's, um, the Pulaski Bridge and the Kosciuszko Bridge are in an, a, an area that has a is heavily Polish, or at least was heavily Polish and still is to a large extent. Um, so there's an ethnic connection to the areas where, where this is, but there was a very explicit connection to the naming at the time. Mayor LaGuardia was the mayor and he gave a speech talking about how the soil that produced Pulaski and Kosciuszko would not long be subjugated wow well it was a nice gesture for them to do that and and of course to remember them yeah yeah it really was and um actually i know that um you wanted to talk about pulaski he's very interesting but i have i we can't move on without me also talking about kosciusko because he's probably my favorite person in this book he was not he was also polish he was not from a um high, uh, an elite family. He was much more of a commoner. And he was part of an experiment that um, the king, the one that Pulaski overthrew, was running to open up the the military and the officership of the military to more common people. Kosciuszko was apparently super talented and he was selected as one of the few and first commoners to be allowed into the cadet school. And then the king sent him for further military education to Paris. Now, nominally he was studying architecture and art because he couldn't officially be studying 
military science in Paris. But so he was sort of doing both at the same time. And it was while he was in Paris that Pulaski overthrew the, the king and established the Bar Confederacy. So Kosciuszko was sort of stuck. He couldn't come back to Poland because he was the king's guy. Um, and he wound up coming, he wound up coming to the United States. He walked into Benjamin Franklin's print shop in Philadelphia and said, I'm here to fight for the revolution. And I'm a military engineer. And, and Franklin was like, sure you are. Settle yourself down. But he really was. And so Franklin sent him on to Washington as well. And the really interesting thing about Kosciuszko is that he was a true revolutionary. He was an ardent opponent of slavery. He believed in e equality of people in a way that very few people did. At, at, who were in leadership positions at that time. And in fact, after, during the revolution, his aide-de-camp was a black man called Agrippa Hull, who had enlisted in the Continental Army. He was from Massachusetts. And they together were this incredible team uh, for collecting information and for strategizing. And always, Kosciuszko credited Agrippa Hull with part of, um, you know, the success of the campaigns that he led. And then after the revolution, Kosciuszko went back to Poland and led a revolution there, the Kosciuszko uprising, to again force the Russians out of Poland temporarily. Um, and while he was in charge, he uh, eliminated serfdom and gave equal rights to religious minorities in Poland. And, um, and then, Again, the Russians came back and um, to make a long story short, Kosciuszko was wounded and the, his revolution failed. Uh, the, uh, Catherine kept him prisoner, but when she died, her son agreed to release him as long as he promised not to go back to Poland. He came to Philadelphia. His home there is a national monument now. And um, he, while he was recuperating from his wounds, he met with chief little turtle of the Miami Indians. And one of the things that he did was he gave Chief Little Turtle the dueling pistols that he had received in that military school so many years ago and advised him to use the pistols on the first person who came to subjugate him. So like, he was just so interesting. And you know, another thing we hear a lot now is, well, we can't judge people back then by the standards of today. And particularly around issues of slavery, particularly around issues of equality, you know, it's important to see that there were people like Kosciuszko. There were people then who saw how immoral slavery was, who saw how immoral our treatment of indigenous peoples uh, was. No, absolutely. And you're, you're so right. There, there were people who, who were fighting for abolition and, and people who we would now think of as, as being almost like anachronistically progressive, but they were there. And that that's how, of course, we got to this point. As soon as I got this book, I flipped straight to the chapter on Bryant Park because Bryant Park is probably my favorite place in New York. I love it. So it's named after William Cullen Bryant, an author and editor of the New York Evening Post in the 19th century. So he was an interesting guy and, and politically very progressive. So what was he like? So he was... Um a poet. He was a published poet from an early age. And he came to New York from Massachusetts. He actually, he studied at Williams for, I think, a year and a half. Um, he didn't graduate. He didn't have funds to continue. But if you go to Williams, they have 
placards claiming him as an alum. They're very proud of the fact that he went there because he was really a major figure in United States, both publishing and uh, literary arts. He was probably America's first sort of internationally recognized author and poet. And as the editor of the, uh, the Evening Post, he had a platform that he used to, um, to promote abolition. He was an ardent abolitionist. And he was an early supporter of Lincoln. And then once Lincoln was elected, he pushed him constantly through his newspaper on issues of, ab of abolition and emancipation. And he also was a big uh, advocate for, um, for the, the tri Indian tribes in the West and was trying to give them a platform about um, the way that their lands were being stolen and the way that they were being attacked by the US military. Really a, a very interesting uh, man. Again, like defying the notion that we can't judge people you know, by contemporary standards. We can see that there were people, there were a lot of people in fact, in the 1800s who held these views. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So um, he was he was a big supporter of social reform. I, I thought he yeah. was so great. And and of course, obviously, as a, as an author and, and an editor, you know the the placement of Bryant Park right behind the New York Public Library is is just kind of perfect, isn't it? Well, it, other way around, right? The um, Bryant Park was there long before the library was there. Um, but it is it is a a, a, a nice juxtaposition. That's perfect. Yeah, and it is a lovely park. Everybody should come to New York and enjoy the park. Um, in the summer, you can sit there. There's you can buy food and you can hang out. There are concerts in the winter. It, it becomes an ice skating rink. It's really a very lovely place. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's um, my favorite memory of New York. Actually, the first time that I went up there, um, we had a hotel not too far from there, just a couple blocks away, and um, and I had my coffee in Bryant Park every morning. Mm -hmm. It was like a dream. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I loved it. Nice. Oh, I should, one more thing I should mention about Bryant before we move on, and that is that he ran for president. He did. Um, he ran for president on a platform, a pre-Civil War, on a platform of no more slave states in the union. It was a free soil party and it was, um, he did not win, but uh, his party, um, Frederick Douglass was among the people associated with his, um, with the party that he was part of. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. I love that. What a great fact. And people, you know, you could tell this to people, but no one really remembers it anymore. They won't believe you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, yeah. you've got to you've got to show them the receipts. It's just yeah. great. It's it's yeah, a wonder that exactly. That There's one other. Let's see if I can find it really quickly. Um, he lived through, I think, nineteen presidential uh, terms. He was born when Washington was president, and he died when Rutherford Hayes was president. So 19 presidencies. Wow. What a life. Oh my yeah. goodness. And being he, he able lived to see a long time and observe this and yeah. write about it in the newspaper. Absolutely amazing. So how old is, is the, the New York Post? Well, the New York Post was founded by, among others, uh, Alexander Hamilton and Archibald Gracie. Uh, Gracie Mansion, which is where the New York mayor lives, it was built by Archibald Gracie and also in the book. Um, so it goes back to the earliest days of the Republic. And, uh, you know, it was a Federalist paper, so it was somewhat on the con 
conservative side in its founding. Um, obviously, when um, when Bryant was editor, it was not. Um, today, you know, the New York Post is certainly a conservative paper. It is part of Rupert Murdoch's empire. So while we are in the 19th century, the Van Wyck Expressway was named after Robert Van Wyck, mayor of New York City at the height of the Gilded Age from 1891 to 1901. So before we talk about him, what was New York like at this time? Well, this was right at the time that New York was becoming New York. Mm -hmm. So in 1896, Queens and Brooklyn joined Manhattan to form the city of greater New York. The Bronx had joined just a little bit earlier and I think Staten Island joined right around then as well. Um, so New York was becoming New York. And in fact, Van Wyck was the first mayor of the greater city of New York. Um, the subway lines were being built and uh, Van Wyck ceremoniously did the first shovel of dirt for the, um, the subway line. And, um, you know, the immigrants were flooding into New York from, from Europe. Um, it was a time of tremendous upheaval in, and particularly in Eastern Europe. A lot of people were coming from um, the areas of Poland and Estonia and Russia. And uh, there was a tremendous Jewish immigration. There was a tremendous Italian immigration. So the city was just changing uh, remarkably constantly. I mean, that's sort of the, the cool thing about New York, right? Change is our normal situation. People are always coming from new places and we speak more languages here in New York than any other place on earth. And that is, I think, our great strength. But that was very much in evidence when Van Wyck was mayor. So, he was involved with something called the ICE Trust Scandal. Now, I don't think that people realize how valuable ICE was in the 19th century. So why was ICE so important and what was he doing with it? So um, in the 19th century, there was no refrigeration. So if you needed to keep something cold, like your food or medicine, you needed ICE. And um, ICE was imported in into New York City from Maine and Canada. And um, Van Wyck as mayor was extremely corrupt. And he, who came in as not a wealthy man, left as a phenomenally wealthy man. And in part, that was because he acquired a significant number of shares in the ICE Trust uh, without paying for them at the very same time that he was signing legislation to give the American ICE Trust the sole right to unload ICE at New York City's docks. So um, he gave them sole access to the city of New York in terms of delivering ICE. They immediately doubled the price. And that was a huge crisis for poor New Yorkers. As we, as we just said, there were people flooding into New York from all over the world. Most of them were very poor and they needed ICE to be able to live. They needed it to keep their food edible and to keep their medicine usable. And this was a huge crisis. It was uh, such a scandal that the New York legislature investigated 
And in fact, it recommended removing him from office. But Theodore Roosevelt, who was the governor at the time, uh, refused to remove him from office. Mm-hmm. It was not his only scandal. Uh, he was in his obituary, which is the time when people generally try to say something nice about you, the New York Times described him as the most corrupt mayor in New York's history. Now, he's had a lot of competition since then. I don't know that that would uh, still be true, but they described his mayorality, if that's the right word, as mired in ooze and slime. So in addition to the ICE trust scandal, he also was involved in what was called the Ramapo water steal, which was a a contract, a no-bid contract for double the going price to buy water for New York City um, on the theory that there was a water crisis here in New York. But there was no water crisis. And in fact, the motivation for Queens and Brooklyn to join with Manhattan was to get access to Manhattan's incredible water supply. Mm-hmm. So New York had plenty of New York City had plenty of water. They had no need to engage in a sweetheart deal for twice the going price of water. And in fact, the Radipo Water Company didn't even exist. It was complete fraud. So again, another uh, legislative investigation. This one voided the the fraudulent contracts. I don't know if it was a fraudulent contract. I'm a lawyer, so I get caught up in the nitty gritty about this, but it was definitely a corrupt contract that was not in the city's interest. Yes. Oh my goodness. Now there was so much going on around that time. And uh, when I think of of Guild Age New York, and and I'm sure a lot of people Mm -hmm. feel this way as well, you know, you think of the Astors, right? So, or at least certainly the 19th century. Yeah. So Astoria is named after John Jacob Astor right? So what, tell, what's the story of, of the Astor family and how much influence did they have over 19th century New York? Okay, well, John Jacob Astor dates back before that, right? He was um, an immigrant right at the end of the Revolutionary War. And he came, he was the child of a butcher. He was quite poor. Um, He came over to the United States because his older brother had enlisted with the Hessians, come over here, right, who were mercenaries fighting for the British, come over here deserted and started a business. So um, John Jacob Astor came to join his brother and he got involved in the fur trade. And he had this great trick of violating the law and trading furs for boots and guts. And he made a fortune doing that. And um, that was, so he made his first fortune in the fur trade. And in fact, he, uh, uh, not only is Astoria here in New York named after him, and that's a story I'll tell you in a minute, but also Astoria, Oregon is named after him because he had sent an expedition out across the, um, the, the United States. He had sort of a continental expedition and a water expedition that went around uh, Tierra del Fuego because of course there was no Panama Canal yet. And they met in what is now Oregon in Astoria and established Fort Astor there. And um, during the War of 1812, the British attacked and they had to flee uh, back to US territory and um, in fact discovered the Southern route that the pioneers used to get to California 
later on. So that was how Astor made his first fortune. He then invested heavily in real estate here in New York, and he became unbelievably wealthy. He, um, in his death, the, the Post um, published his holdings in the, um, the municipal ledger. And it was pages upon pages listing all of the property that he owned. He owned a massive swath of uh, Southern and Central Manhattan. And it, reputedly on his deathbed, what he said is if he could do it over again, he would just buy all of Manhattan. Uh, he was the most hated man in America uh, until his death when he passed that uh, honor, for lack of a better word, onto Henry Frick who was, of course, a union buster and a uh, coal and steel magnet. Wow, goodness. And yeah, so anyway, how did Astoria here in Queens become named for him? So Thomas Hallett, who was the founder of, um, of the town here, um, was sort of cultivating Astor, hoping for a major donation to a school they were trying to set up. And he offered, if Astor made a name, made a donation that they would name the town after him. And Astor did, he made a very small donation, which was not really what they were hoping for. But the legislation to name the town had already gone through the legislature, so they were stuck with it, even though they tried to unname Astoria for him, because it, not only did he barely make a donation uh, to this, in this quid pro quo, you know, make a donation, we'll name the town after you, but he also never set foot in, in the, the place. Um, he did, however, have a summer home across the river, right near where Gracie Mansion is. And he could look across the part of the river that was part of the East River that's called Hellgate and see Astoria, but he never came here. Wow. You think that if, if somebody went to the trouble of naming a place after you, you'd at least visit it once. <laughs> well, but if you reneged on the deal, for naming, you might not feel comfortable setting foot in the town because he wasn't very popular here. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's that's very true. But of course, his family became very influential throughout the 19th century. So what, yes. what was the story there? Yes. So of course, Mrs. Astor ruled New York society with an iron fist, right? He had amassed so much money. He was America's first multimillionaire. And upon his death, that money all went to his family and his um, his children built on the fortune and um, dominated what had what was becoming New York society. Um, New York society was a very very hierarchical, and there was the what they call themselves the top two hundred were the wealthy families with an appropriate pedigree. And they were sort of modeling themselves on the British aristocracy. And in fact, we're intermarrying a lot with the British aristocracy. And um, the Astors were really at the, at the core of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very, very interesting. Gosh, there's so much history in here and it, it's so yeah. fantastic. It's a very interesting book. Um, and, and of course, all these stories kind of tie together. So of course you dedicate the book to New York City as the greatest city in the world. So in your opinion, what makes New York City the greatest city in the world? What makes New York City such an incredible place is that we all make it together. This is, we are the place that people come to um, from all over the world. People come to New York bringing their 
language, their tradition, and most importantly, their food. Mm -hmm. And we all live here together. We live on top of each other because New York is not particularly big in terms of its uh, real estate and you know, a lot of people. So we all rub shoulders, we all share cultures, we eat each other's food, we learn bits of each other's languages, and that makes us a place that everybody belongs. And that's what makes New York so incredible is we all belong here and we all make it together. And any of you listening who come to New York, you are welcome. You are, you know, there's space for you here. Just beautiful. Well, it's one of my favorite places, that's for sure. So where can we find more about you and your work? Well, I'm a professor at CUNY, the City University of New York. Uh, I teach at the law school and my specialty is environmental justice. And in fact, one of the really interesting things about um, this book is that even I'm not a historian, though I pretend to be one in writing this book, but it has really influenced the way I look at environmental policy. And one thing that's really striking in this book is just how much of our infrastructure was built with an eye towards reducing congestion. And all of that infrastructure is now synonymous with congestion. Mm -hmm. And so one of the really interesting things for me as a student of environmental policy and uh, urban uh, planning is how misguided it is to think that building roads is the way to solve congestion problems as opposed to mass transit. Mm -hmm. um, which is not answering your question of how people can find out more about me. So I have a website, RebeccaBradsbys.com. Um, also on the CUNY website, you can find all of my scholarly work and the environmental justice comic books that I make in partnership with an artist named uh, Charlie LaGreca. And uh, of course the book uh, Naming Gotham is for sale. Every place books are sold. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> you, can, you can buy it on Amazon, but if you have a local bookstore, please, and, and you want to get the book, please ask them to get it for you instead. Absolutely wonderful. Well, it is such a fun book. And I know that I already want to plan my next trip back to New York. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. So Professor Rebecca, thank you so very much for your time. It's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful day chatting with you. Well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Once again, I'd like to thank Rebecca Bratsby's for stopping by the show. Naming Gotham is out now, and you can find more about Rebecca and some bonus places that didn't make it into the book at her website at RebeccaBratsby's.com. I'd also like to thank our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram. You can check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there and we're adding new articles all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.